Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Good morning. I'm Michelle Martin taking a look at the red hot tech. IPO of the year. Hotly anticipated global investors have been pouring their money into Hong Kong ahead of Ant Group's hotly anticipated share sale. So those inflows of money propping up the currency, inflating the local dollars borrowing costs. The Ant Group, you see, is poised for a record-breaking IPO in Shanghai and Hong Kong. How popular? Well, Jack Ma's Ant Group is seeking to raise $17.5 billion in its Hong Kong share sale, and it says it will not seek to lock in those cornerstone investors because it is confident that there's going to be plenty of demand for one of the largest equity deals in Hong Kong, the financial hub. So today I managed to convince one investor to let us into the often invisible processes of investing. So how does an investor assess a possible IPO? I thought we'd we'd take the real principles and apply them in real time to a real hot case study. So I've invited Jonathan Ang, growth investor and author of Expand Your Circle of Competence to do just that. How are you, John? Doing great today. Uh, really exciting IPO and financial. Um, always happy to come on board with you, Michelle. Thanks for being here. Okay, so you're going to take us to the big helicopter level overview of Ant's financial. First up, did you look at the, what were you basing this on? Publicly available information? Right, so we can actually find on uh, find this information on S1 Prospectors. So I'll just really run through uh, some of these quick numbers to give our listeners kind of a um, an overview of what they are getting into, let's say if they uh, buy into this uh, IPO. All right, so basically M Financial, uh, what they do is basically, uh, for most of you consumers, uh, you will know that it's actually kind of like an app that helps you pay uh, for things. You can use it to pay for your bills. You can use it to pay for your railway tickets in China. All right, you can pay for so many things. It's so convenient that way. All right, so basically in China, 711 million people use Alipay. And to just put into context, uh, there's only 1.4 billion people in China. So that's a take up rate of 50%. So in a sense, one in two people in China uses Alipay. And I think this is the worst probably um, uh, most used uh, financial or wallet app. Uh, you don't see this kind of numbers elsewhere, even in Square. You know, uh, you don't see this kind of numbers. So uh, Alipay also actually partners with uh, 2,000 financial institutions. We're talking about banks here. And they have over 80 million merchants that are using uh, their Alipay to accept payments from consumers. And within just a period of uh, one year from 2019 June to 2020 June, uh, and Financial has processed about 118 trillion Chinese yuan through its platform. And by the way, uh, uh, and financial is still not a bank yet. So imagine processing 118 trillion Chinese yuan through Alipay. That's insane amount of volume. Wow. Wow. Really interesting overview. So you're looking at the, you poured through the actual hundreds of pages in the, in the prospectus? Yeah, the prospectus is 600 pages long. And <laughs> Thank you for doing this for me, for us. Okay, so you looked at a couple of data sets that you say um, you have question marks about. Right. Uh, I think for most investors, uh, this is probably one thing, uh, two things that they actually uh, look forward to uh, in the future because 
um, these are things that are loss making right now, but it isn't really monetized. So uh, there are two. So I think there's this saying that says uh, data is the new gold, yeah. uh, the new oil, right? Data is getting more and more uh, expensive. So there are two ways in which uh, Alipay can monetize its data and it isn't uh, monetizing now. So these are your, uh, what they call Jima score or your Sesame, Sesame credit score. So this is kind of like, uh, what I call your credit rating, uh, if I understand it right, it's kind of like a fecal score in, in the US that take on a um, borrow money, mm-hmm. right? Banks will actually look at this score, right? And number two, um, Alipay hasn't monetized uh, its uh, wallet and payment data, right? So basically, uh, you know, Alipay actually gets so much data from you. In fact, when I was in China, if I don't allow Alipay to uh, use and track where I am by owning my geographic location. Mm-hmm. I can't use the app, and when I can't use the app, I can't pay money. So basically, Alipay has so much data. It knows what you're buying every day. It knows uh, at what time where are you, and it can really push out uh, all this data to advertisers. So for example, if you're near a uh, shopping mall, right? Uh, uh, shops from that shopping mall can actually uh, put ads onto your phone and you know ask you to uh, go nearby and purchase their products. Is that your experience in China? Um, in China, I do not really look at ads because, <laughs> to be honest, my Chinese isn't really good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. So those were the two data sets that you say are loss-making and directly, they're not monetized directly. But they walk us through the couple of ways that N Financial does make its money. Right, so there are, there are many four segments here, right? You have your payment tag. And this is where you know users use the app to make payments to merchants, and then from there you know they get a cut from uh, from the transaction. Uh, very similar to Visa and Master, right? So for every dollar that comes through, I get a really small cut, right? The thing is, uh, the amount of uh, money that I process is really really huge, right? So all these small the cuts actually make up to uh, a big sum of money, all right? Second part, uh, which is the credit tag. So this is where they actually uh, issue out micro loans uh, to individuals and also small medium uh, businesses. All right, so uh, this is where uh, N Financial is really good at because a lot of these existing banks they are not borrowing, uh, they are not lending out money to small consumers and small businesses because of the risk, right? But the thing is, M Financial has data as to how consumers spend money. So if you are the kind of guy who doesn't earn a lot of money and you spend free, uh, you spend a lot of money, right? I can actually see from the way you spend on the Alipay app, right? And from there, I will not uh, lend you money. But if Alipay can actually see that, you know, this guy actually uh, brings in quite a bit of money and he spends pretty prudently. So I'm okay to actually lend him uh, some money, right? So this is where M Financial fills up a huge gap in terms of micro loans in China. All right. And the third part is Invest Tech. And uh, this, this is something that's really, really interesting. When I first went to China, uh, I could actually put let's say if I had some money in my Alipay wallet, I could actually put some of this money into uh, funds and, you know, I can even put them into fixed deposits, uh, things, something like fixed deposits, all right? And, you know, they will promise you a few percent in, uh, if, you lock, if you lock your money up for a year. So it's really, really convenient. You really don't need to <laughs> open up a fancy brokerages account and everything. And you can get started investing just like that, right, through and financial uh, Alipay wallet. Mm. And lastly is InsurTech. Uh, as the name suggests, you can actually buy insurance through the app. So they have all kinds of insurance there health insurance, your car insurance, whatever insurance you want, uh, you'll find it there. 
That's just tremendous. I mean, that is what we're seeing a lot of fintechs aim to be, right? But most are just one or two of those things and and financial already making money on all four of those sectors that you outline. Or are they not? Is there one sector that's falling behind? Yeah, so the main uh, the main revenues coming in is actually a uh, payment tech here, right? It makes up about forty three uh, percent. So I think when I was looking through the numbers, um, when I was looking through the income statement, I think there were some uh, concerns that I had. All right, so number one, the 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 cut or the transaction cost that they are paying to banks uh, is actually increasing, right? So. Think of it this way, right? For Alipay to actually facilitate uh, transactions or f- to facilitate payments through their platform, they're actually working with banks and banks uh, actually charge them uh, a transaction cost to facilitate all these payments. And, you know, if you take a look at um, their margins here, all right? So f- from 2017, right, for every $1 that uh, they process, Alipay process, they used to earn 2.4 cents, all right? So for every $1, they earn 2.4 cents. And now the number as of the latest, which is uh, the first half of 2020, for every $1 that they process, they only earn 0.28 cents. So not even a cent, right? Lesser than one cent, so it's 0.28 cents. And I think, you know, the banks are actually squeezing them um, and they have kind of no say as to this, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, the banks are still the ones who own the ledgers, they own the uh, records and they kind of own some part of the infrastructure, right? So even though um, M Financial has done a really great job by bypassing the underlying rails. So when I say underlying rails, uh, I'm talking about players like uh, Visa and MasterCard, which is really prevalent in the US. So they've, they've been able to cut away middlemen like Visa and Master. So that is why it is so hard. If you go to China, it is so you don't really see Visa and Master anywhere, right? You can't bring your credit card and it will not work in China, right? It's very hard for Visa and Master to penetrate uh, the market. And, you know, they've done a good job uh, by, you know, kicking these middle players out. However, at the end of the day, the banks are still uh, increasing the transaction costs. And this is kind of, uh, affecting them because if you think about it, uh, payment the payment part of uh, the revenues. So payment actually makes up forty three percent of their revenues. And you know, if they were to be, if they are going to get continued to be squeezed by the banks, then I would say they are going to be less and less profitable on that front in terms of revenues. John Ang is a growth investor and author of Expand Your Circle of Competence. So investors, I thought it would be really useful uh, to go beyond the headlines of what could be the world's largest IPO and really take a look at the numbers in its perspectives uh, for the end group and, you know, have a walk through it with a growth investor. What does an investor look out for? So if you look at their financials, John, uh, why, why did sales and marketing costs for the first half of 2019 pop out for you? All right, so this is this is one thing that I think a lot of people do not pick up uh, because you have to really dig deep uh, to actually see this. All right, so if you look at Ant's financials, uh, sales and marketing costs for the first half of 2019, right, it was uh, 19.8% of their revenues. Right, so for this year when they reported uh, in their prospectus, right, in the first half of 2020, this sales and marketing this sales and marketing costs dropped by almost half, right, to 8.4% of revenues. So to me, when I see this, uh, it seems like they're trying to cut down 
the sales and marketing costs to maximize their profits so that uh, during IPO, you know, they can get better valuations for investors. So I would say if uh, we go through this IPO process, uh, maybe post IPO, we may see sales and marketing costs going back up again to normal. Mm. Yeah. So this is uh, something that I spot because I think it's pretty hard for a company to cut sales and marketing so dress drastically all right um so i would expect sales and marketing costs as a percentage of revenues to go up uh, post ipo so that's just how i see it okay that's that's fascinating because in fact i think sales and marketing have been the biggest casualties of i mean along with retail and um air flights Sales and marketing has been a huge casualty. I was just talking this morning to the co-founder of a tech firm um, and they are looking at borderless PR and he quite honestly, when I asked him about the impact of COVID on his business, said that he's noticed, you know, a big, big reduction. So, but that was, you know, he was attributing it to COVID. You're saying you're seeing sales and marketing costs drop in the first half of last year. Uh, this year, 2020. 2020, not, 20, not 2019. So if you compare 2020 to 2019, they slashed well, That's when you see the call. Right, right. So yeah. COVID could still be a factor there. All right. So take us back to, again, um, the how close Ant is with the big financial firms in China, namely the banks. Um, how is it doing in terms of perhaps creating its own pathways to settlement? Right. Could you repeat that again, Michelle, uh, so that I can understand if I... Okay, so do, does Ant still here. depend on banks for most of its settlement processes? Yes, so Ant Financial still needs banks here. And um, basically, without the banks, um, they can't process uh, any transactions. So think of it this way, right? Imagine if I were to use uh, a credit card that is uh, issued by the Bank of China. Right, and I use this Bank of China credit card to purchase uh, with merchants uh, things uh, online and I pay using Alipay. All right, and end of the day, when I use my credit card that's issued by Bank of China, even though I use uh, the Alipay app, all right, um, the Alipay app still has to verify with uh, Bank of China if you have the money right, in your bank and that's where they will approve uh, the, the transaction. All right, so, what they have cut out is the middleman, which is uh, MasterCard and Visa, but they have not been able to cut out uh, the banks because end of the day, uh, people still keep their money in the banks. Mm. Um, we do see a shift in uh, the Chinese people uh, putting their money into Alipay and, and just really not putting money in banks. Yep. Right? That is where I feel that you know, uh, for end financial, they might face a potential uh, roadblock. Uh, reg uh, in terms of a regulation roadblock, right? Because in uh, in 2019, or I think in 2018, China has, has actually launched uh, new rules requiring uh, non-financial companies like uh, N Financial, or, or I would say companies that do not have a banking license like N Financial back then to, uh, you know, uh, put their escrow funds into uh, non-interest-bearing non bank accounts by 2019, right? And this will actually prevent uh, N Financial to use uh, these funds uh, for investment purposes. So I think that kind of like a limited N Financial to actually uh, be able to use their float available to them. And another thing here is also, I feel that um, the Chinese government is very, very careful 
as to how they want uh, end financial to disrupt the industry. Because after all, if you take a look at the top banks in the world, the top four by assets are actually your Chinese banks, right? You have your Agricultural Bank of China, Bank of China, ICBC, and you have the last one, right? So I don't think uh, the Chinese government would actually let uh, banks to fail, uh, for sure, right? So if end financial grows too quickly, uh, too much and it's too much of the pie and it's affecting the banks and I think the Chinese I won't be surprised if the Chinese government steps in and uh, gives a regulation slap to end financial all right so I think for investors who are going into this uh, yes this is definitely a company that's going to grow all right it's it's, it's exciting it has a wonderful story all right and if you have been to China you know what I mean right you can't go out you can't go out with cash anymore nowadays. You have to use Alipay uh, to pay. No one really accepts cash anymore. So the, the thing is, there's this good side, but also do note that, you know, the Chinese government is kind of unique as well. Like, you know, they can actually uh, push up regulations really quickly and also in an unpredictable manner sometimes. Uh, it's really unlike in the US, you know, where if you want to pass out a bill or a law, you have to go through Congress and everything. Right. In China, everything is so much faster and it's kind of a bit unpredictable sometimes as well. So, uh, you know, I think the banks see Alipay's growth as a threat. And, you know, if the bank sees it as a threat, um, the Chinese government might see it as a threat as well. So as an investor, I, I really need, I, wa I will want to be aware of this, uh, what I call regulatory or political risk involved in investing in uh, such a Chinese company. And uh, because of these reasons, <laughs> for me personally, I just um, am not interested in, in the IP of this company. Oh, because I not that's a much. bubble for the red hot tech <laughs> IPO of the year. <laughs> yeah. Because, and, because you were yeah. explaining, go ahead. Yeah, and Michelle, I think uh, you probably know know me. You know, this is my stance because I feel that there are some times where you know you know that a company is great, but you just do not have that feeling for it. You know, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people say you know uh, when you invest, you shouldn't go by feelings. But I would say if you really read the memoirs of the most uh, successful investors, they say that always go with your gut feel, right? Because your gut feel is actually made up of all your past experience. You know, there are sometimes in investing there are some patterns which. Uh, you feel that something's wrong, but you just can't point a finger to it. Um, and that's just what I call the investing acumen. And and everyone will form their own investing acumen over time. And I'm sure that, you know, for me, uh, my acumen has worked out well for me. And I think sometimes people focus on how their gut feel has made them miss out on opportunities, but they do not focus at, on, um, at times where their gut feel actually helped them uh, save money from huge potential losses, right? So I think too many people are focusing on the formal part, right? Which yes. is what if I miss out this opportunity, but they don't realize that their existing framework has saved them so many times from losing their hard-earned money. This is so, so fascinating. For me, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, for you. <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I, I choose the second part, which is to protect my risk first rather than, you know, gluing my eyes on the upside. <laughs> this has been great insight and so rare that, you know, an investor will so openly share with us his decision-making process when looking at an upcoming IPO. Very quickly, if we could talk about valuation because you're looking at uh, the Ant Group through its mammoth IPO looking to raise $35 billion that values it at about... Uh, $250 billion. So very quickly, what goes off in your head when you hear those numbers? 
Um, I think right now it's too early because if you take a look at uh, what happened to Snowflake, all right, even though we have kind of like the uh, estimated uh, IPO price that's going to come up, but the truth is sometimes um, in IPO, your accredited investors, they're going to go in first. All right. And, you know, they have the first uh, few hours where, you know, the market maker will decide and you know, place orders of, uh, on behalf of these bankers. And from there, <laughs> you know, um, I would say the IPO price will definitely go up. Uh, as, as for the growth itself, I think um, the growth is there. And based on the financials here, right, uh, if you're looking at the latest uh, uh, earnings, you know, the first half, uh, I would say that, you know, the, the financials look okay, as long as, you know, you have a five to 10 year uh, approach to looking at things. Um, but, you know, of course, the short term, there's, there's just so much we can control, right? We really can't control much. But if you're in for the long game, I'm talking about five to 10 years, then I think it's okay. Well, thanks, John, for taking us through the anatomy of a, you know, fintech powerhouse uh, ahead of its expected IPO. And Jonathan Ang is a growth investor and he is author of the book, Expand Your Circle of Competence, giving us a masterclass today on how investors think. John, appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Have a good day, Michelle. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.